And, you know, I, I, I've, I've got a saying that, you know, you've got to judge yourself off your losses, not your wins, because from your wins, everything goes right. And you think, well, I can do that again. I'm, I'm a superstar, right? I can do that again. But whereas your losses is where you sit back and go, okay, I did this wrong. I did this wrong. I did this wrong. Here's what I need to fix and improve for the next time. And you, you become better. I, I don't think you become better from your wins alone in isolation. I This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Sham and in this episode of Property Investory, we're speaking with co-founder of Coposit, Chris Ferris. A seasoned entrepreneur, he shares his secrets to investing in the current high price market as well as the principle of optioning. Plus, he shares a little anecdote about his time at school. Compassionate in a ruthless field, Ferris found his company to help people like us get into the property market in its currently crippling state. A learned behavior, his generosity clearly stems from his childhood, the child of hardworking immigrant parents. Ferris talks about his upbringing and the tools he was equipped with to help pave the way for his incredible journey of success. With my parents um, being very much uh, into property, you know, my, my dad uh, was a first uh, migrant into the country so he was from Lebanon and came at the age of 14 I believe so you know not knowing the language not knowing the country but having to make it work uh, for himself and the family and and he was a plumber by trade so you know he was in the industry working consistently within the construction space and you know we were from young ages so myself and my brother Daniel who's also a co-founder here at, at Coposit you know, we were on construction sites from the ages of 9, 10 years old. Bringing his skills into adulthood, Ferris outlines what a typical day might look like for him. Co-founder and CEO as well of, of Coposit. So again, talking through what Coposit is, is the being able to break down that deposit barrier in a really different way for, for new properties. I suppose my day-to-day is really fortunate where I'm able to hear everyone's property journey, whether it's an investor, first-time buyer, owner-occupier, or even downsizers. I speak to property buyers every day about their biggest challenges and some of the you know what we're seeing at the moment and some of the drawbacks so you know apart from running in the team there's a team of 20 of us here at Coposit at the moment um, and it's really really interesting to see some of the stories that we're seeing at the moment particularly with that rising interest rate environment very difficult for people to make projects work um, from being able to get into property but I suppose on the, on the flip side to that, we deal with developers, so property developers every day as well. So not only are we seeing the struggles of people trying to get into property, you know, whether it's a first-time property or that fifth property, whether, whatever that is, we're seeing the difficulties on the other end from developers in trying to get new stock to market. Um, and we're seeing that on a daily basis, whether it's with government trying to introduce new schemes. And we saw you know, in 2023, this is what was the main topic of discussion in the media, that housing supply. But it is very difficult to, to get that out of the ground. And we're seeing that from developers every day, that it is very difficult to get projects out of the ground. And therefore, that affects purchases and people trying to get into property that um, it's very difficult because there's no new supply coming on. Um, so that's my day-to-day. I see a lot of that firsthand and speaking with property developers and speaking with purchasers and obviously managing the team and motivating our amazing team here. Imparting words of wisdom to listeners, Ferris shares the most important things to consider about development, 
summarised into three easy points. So my background as well was in development. So after leaving school, started off my career in accounting and then came into the development space. So I've got a good background in development as well and know a lot of the pain that developers are experiencing. Pre-COVID, there was, there was a general formula, right, that made projects work. You had your land cost, you got your construction cost, you've got your sales prices, and then there's everything else in between. That rule book after, before COVID, that, it's got thrown out the window. It doesn't exist anymore, right? So you've got your land price, which is if you've bought five or six years ago, that's a fixed cost. That, that can't change. The cost of construction has gone up 30 40 50%. That's a huge problem. But not only has the cost of construction gone up, the availability of labor has also become very scarce. And that's become a problem for people to actually get people onto the sites to get it delivered. That's become a huge problem. Um, And so then the third metrics, which is your sales price, you've got the cost elements being your land, uh, your construction costs, and there's all those other costs in there as well, but particularly the, the land and construction. But then you've got your sales prices, which effectively determines, you know, a plus B minus C equals your, your profit on a project, right? And your, your sales prices are just not increasing enough to be able to get projects out of the ground and make them feasible. And, and we're seeing that on a day-to-day basis where developers have done their assessments on projects that are just not stacking up. Uh, and it's, it's compounded by rising interest rates and the fact that Interest rates have now become a huge problem and another cost, of course, in developments, if you're borrowing, whether it's from a bank or a non-bank lender, it becomes very difficult to get projects out of the ground uh, from the interest rate hikes and interest rate increase uh, from COVID side of things as well. And that's so true. I think you, you've hit the nail on the head because of the increase in costs, construction, hard to get labor. You've pretty much eaten into the profit margin of a developer and then they go, what's the point of doing it? There's no, you know, there's no money to be made. So... That's why projects are not getting off the ground and we're not getting enough supply. But what about the existing supply that's in the market? What about that? The existing supply, I mean, it's it's there. But, you know, we talk about first-time buyers. They're not buying that 3 or $4 million property in Lane Cove. Like, how can they actually afford those properties? So, you know, you had during COVID interest rates at all-time low. Uh, now, you've got interest rates where they're elevated or some people might call it back-to-normal rates. Um, the affordability component is very difficult. So where they were able to afford, you know, three, four hundred grand more during COVID, those same properties, they can't actually afford those properties. So there's an affordability issue as well that people just can't actually get in based off, you know, wage growth isn't happening. So how do you actually get into the property market? I scratch my head asking that question every single day. <laughs> it's very difficult for people to get ahead at the moment. There are ways. It's not impossible, of course, uh, but it but it is very difficult. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it. People getting in, people buying, people transacting, which is fantastic to see. Um, but I think having the aspirations to want to be a homeowner and want to buy property is the first step. You need to have that aspiration and not have given up. I think a lot of people do give up maybe too early and I encourage people to not give up so early and keep down that path and find a way to make it work. Escaping a war-torn country. Ferris's family found themselves in Australia in search of a better life. Although hindsight can confirm for us that they achieved that, Ferris's childhood was one of labor, gratitude, and faith. So I grew up out in the hills in Sydney, so out west, uh, or southwest, I suppose, um, in Cherrybrook, this little suburb called Cherrybrook out here in the hills. Um, grew up there. I've got a brother and a sister, uh, my parents. So my mum was born here, and as I mentioned earlier, my dad was born overseas. Um, came here at the age of 14 
and you know did it tough. It, it was very very difficult. Came out here um, from from Lebanon to avoid um, some of the war and some of the unrest, civil unrest that was happening in Lebanon at the time, and and came for for a better life. So you must be first generation then, uh, Australian of yeah, because you know first generation Australian, and and I almost feel there's like there's you know there's some obligation that I owe to my parents and in, you know particularly my dad um, that. You know, he did everything for us to give us an amazing platform to, you know, build something um, and make something of ourselves. You know, during, I talk about my experiences being on construction sites from an early age, you know, with dad, you know, a lot of the time I was at school and people say, oh, Chris, you're excited to go on holidays. I'm like, yeah, man, not really. Nah. <laughs> I spent two, the two week holidays working on, on sites with dad, but, you know, at the time I didn't, I, I I wouldn't say I hated it. I didn't want to do it. But now I look back and I'm like, Gee, that was the best thing that, you know, dad could have done for me was give me that experience. That was the hard work element, right? That he's instilled, that's instilled, it's ingrained now. Um, so that was an early age, man, like from from 10 years old up to 16, 17, working on job sites with dad. But that's also probably spawned the love for property, Um because a lot of it was like bathroom, as a plumber, it was like bathroom renovations. And, you know, I'd go speak to the electrician and I'd speak to the builder on site and I'd speak to the renderer and like you'd speak to everyone. And that's sort of, you're getting the, the, all the inputs of property just by being on site, which was great. It was, it was an amazing experience. Oh, absolutely. That, that is invaluable. At first, when you, as a kid, you don't realize how the, the value of that until you, you know, you appreciate when you're much older, you're just thinking, oh, my other friends get to go out and play, dad. Why, why the heck are you, are you pulling me back in here? I don't want to do it. But no, you, you, you're absolutely right. It's only much later. And I think the, the challenge that we all face is even just the kids nowadays, everyone wants to, you know, get to where they want to go quickly. But the thing is, they don't appreciate the hard work that goes into it because they don't see what goes on behind the scenes until you actually get there. So I was forced into it. I still remember I had some mates when I was at the age of 13 say, hey, Chris, you coming to the movies today? And I'm like, no, nah, man, I got to work. So, <laughs> so I'm working with dad on site and me and my brother, actually, both of us. But again, that's, that's brought the hard work um, work ethic i suppose in and it's also brought the the love for property uh, and where we get to today uh, and that's sort of the early that was my early exposure to property indirectly i didn't think it at the time but that was my early exposure to property and how to add value to a property you know a renovation adds value to a property outlining his childhood ferris reminisces on his upbringing for any listeners who have felt that school wasn't for them Ferris shares an important lesson. Academic intelligence does not necessarily limit your success. Hence, Ferris, a business entrepreneur and CEO, shares his stories about the struggles of school. So I went to high school at Oak Hill College there at um, Old Northern Road, which was a great, a great school. Um, and again, very fortunate to be able to go to such a fantastic school. Huge grade. I think there was like 300 kids or students in each grade, which you know, I wouldn't even know everyone uh, in each grade at the time. But it was a massive school. Um, but again, that was a really good base. Um, I, I, would, I wouldn't say I was an, an A-model student either. <laughs> you know, my mum my was at the principal's office a lot of, a lot of the time. But, you know, um, I guess, <laughs> but, you know, it's, you know, square peg, round hole maybe. Or what is it? Circle peg, round hole. It's just uh, school's not for everyone. But I, I was just restless, uh, I think. And I, and I see that now that... Um, school is very structured and and you know you know but sometimes you need to come out of that to really blossom and 
you know, I think that's when having left school, and it was a it was a fantastic school, mind you, but having left school, started my career out as an accountant, um, studying at Western Sydney University, and um, studying accounting, and I and I would say that was a fantastic base um, for anyone that's looking to do to do anything, studying in accounting and having an understanding of numbers and and how numbers work and understanding money and how money works uh, is really important, uh, particularly with property. You know, property is almost a game of financing. Um, so you've got to figure out, understand that component and, and how that all works. Um, so I, I went and did the accounting side of things, studied, worked for a Deloitte top four accounting practice for a bit. And then I had bought my first property at the age of 20. Um, very lucky. And I was pushed in to um, my parents were obviously saying, buy property, buy property. Um and I was fortunate to be able to buy that first property using a, a guarantor. A, a mum and dad went guarantor for my deposit. I didn't have it at the time. Um, you know, it was a three hundred thousand dollar property in Blacktown of, of New South Wales. Oh, nice! Yep, great way to start off. You know, I think people people listening now think three hundred thousand. Geez, you know. Um, I know you'd be, you'd be laughing if you got that now. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't that long. Like when I think about it, it was two thousand eleven. It wasn't that long ago. It's only 12, 13 years ago, you know. So, um, and and that was that started the the prop the love for property or the actual first investment into property. Um, I'd done some other investments. So I had my grandfather, I suppose, taught me about investing in shares. So at the age of sixteen, I think I had saved up a little bit of money from working with dad. I think he was giving me thirty bucks a day at the time, which was you know below minimum wage. <laughs> thanks, thanks, dad, if you're listening. <laughs> Uh, mate, it was crazy. But he was teaching me how to drive manual at the same time. So I guess that was sort of and you know, um but uh so able to invest five hundred bucks into shares and at the time it was it was fluke of, of quite a lucky purchase where I they that company got taken over and we made a hundred percent gain. I was like, Oh cool. So that was my first exposure into a different class of assets investing. So I went from five hundred bucks to a thousand bucks. But then my very next investment I bought a company called Babcock and Brown. Oh yes, thousand bucks. I remember that one. A one hundred percent loss. So <laughs> went uh, into administration. So that was so that was my early exposure into shares, and I was like, okay, this is the share market. Yeah, just you know. So let's let's go back to property. So <laughs> it's uh um and, and like that that property investment in Blacktown was a fantastic way to to get on the ladder and and start uh, the property investment journey. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I want to just take a little step back, um, sort of paint a little bit more of a picture behind your childhood. I'm actually curious to know. So, as you mentioned, you, you went to school, you did all the things that parents asked us to do, but you, you felt a little bit restless as you're saying. What what's some of the things that you really enjoyed or had memories of school besides academic side of things? Um, obviously, you did okay in there, but um, what were some of the major things that you enjoyed about I actually, I think I did, I did quite well for for not having, you know, extremely academic. I did quite well. I got ninety eight percent in math at the time. It was general, it was general math, general math. <laughs> but like that was my claim to fame. Like it was, that was my thing. So math and numbers. I've always had a love for for numbers, and you know, a lot of the time property is just sort of a game of numbers and, and looking at that. But feeling restless as a kid, you know, it, it's really interesting. I think I was the youngest of three, so maybe felt like I had to live in the shadows of my sister who's the oldest and my brother um, but just always having to I think the, the youngest becomes a bit more resilient as well um, and you know mum and dad they did everything they could to give us a great platform but we weren't 
rich by any a rich family by any means. Like they, I still remember times where dad he was self employed, so not working for anyone. And there were times where you know he didn't have work, and I still remember you know as a young kid that it, it was tough. Like um, you know, again they gave us everything we, we they could, but it wasn't an easy uh, financially. There were times where we struggled financially, and we didn't go on those holidays. We never went overseas. Uh, you know, my grandfather had a caravan in, in Shell Harbor. That was our holiday place, which was the best holiday place. As a kid, you don't give it, you don't care where it's, where it is. You don't care as long as it's with family and you're having fun. Exactly. So, you know, they did everything they can to give us that base, which is why I mentioned that, you know, there's an obligation, to me, there's an obligation to actually make something of, of what we got and just try and, and live with minimal regrets, not no regrets, there's always regrets, but minimal regrets as possible. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you say that because I think ultimately kids growing up, as long as there's family and there's lots of love and so forth, um, no matter what you go through, you will remember it. And I, I can resonate with you because you know my once again my parents as well they were immigrants and they came to Australia with only two hundred dollars. And at times there would be times where we didn't have enough money, and you'd hear the pain and the stress that my parents would go through. But they get through it because they know how to actually survive. And I think that's the key thing that passed on to the future generations is because you've got to hustle, you've got to actually work hard, you've got to be able to do all those things because ultimately not everything is just fed to you. I mean, if you're working for someone, it's a different story because you know you get your secure, regular paycheck. But the thing is when you're running your own business, it's a completely different uh, mindset altogether and you know your, your resilience has to be stronger than anything else. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's a really important message to get out there that the, it's easy when – not easy but it's when you're working – as an employee, it's you get your paycheck, and that's um, you know you've got your reliability of income. But when you're self-employed, you don't know when the next paycheck is going to come, and you don't know you don't know if that subcontractor is going to pay you, for example, and you don't know that you know. And at the time, and that did happen to Dad once, I think it was once, yeah, where someone didn't pay him, and that was you know two or three weeks worth of work that had just not been paid, and and that's really hard to to take in for the family, but. Again, like you said, the household was filled with love and affection at the time and it was an amazing household to, to grow up into and they still got a great relationship with mum and dad and uh, even now. So, um, you know, I think they, they're always encouraging us and, and trying to push us to, to do better and to do things. And now I'm at the point where we are, we're pushing so hard and my dad's getting a bit older and probably more conservative and he's like, slow down. So it's really interesting to see that dynamic uh, come into play where it's like just Chris slow down like you, you do it a lot yeah which is really interesting because he's always been pushing and pushing yeah yeah but I guess maybe in the old age they get a bit scared or risk averse right yeah risk averse I, I get exactly the same I think your dad and my dad's probably very similar age because he's telling me the same thing I'm like what's wrong dad you're the one usually telling me to go faster and harder <laughs> I wonder if we'll be telling our kids that at some point <laughs> Coming up after the break, Ferris explains the value of a guarantor loan in making or breaking one's ability to finance and structure a property investment. And so, you know, the, the whole structure of having an 80% loan against the actual property and a 20% loan against, you know, a guarantor loan with your parents' property or whoever goes guarantor, you know, avoiding lenders' mortgage insurance and being able to, to buy a property with effectively no deposit. but you know that you can service that property. He shares the secret regarding rental returns and granny flats. Yeah, the, the yields on the granny flats were just amazing. Where It was about 20 odd percent because it cost 100 grand to build the granny flat and you're getting the same rent as the granny flat as the front house. 
which was incredible. He reinforces the most important lesson of all, have resilience. And what followed were some losses, let me tell you. So what we decided to do after that seven-figure gain was we then went and said, well, we can do this again. Let's go option up. I'll stack more properties. So- and that's next. I'm Tyron Sham, and you're listening to Property Investory. Unlike many others, Ferris' story of success is also a story about family, crediting his passion for property to his parents. Ferris outlines the role of his family in his journey. So he wasn't a, a trader of property by any means. So we went from Cherrybrook um, as our primary residence for our, our family home. Then we moved to uh, a smaller block in Dural as well. So they're still out there in Dural. So never had investment properties or anything like that. But the my brother was the first one to buy a property at the time, so he, he bought in Seven Hills and it was a completely run down, I think it was ex-housing commission property where they start to sell some of them off every now and again, went to the public auction, he won that by 500 bucks and he wasn't going to bid for it again and dad's like, nah, just keep going, just go another, go one more. Daniel, I remember Daniel at the time was like, are you sure dad? He's like, yeah, just go for it, I'll give you the 500 bucks, like it's okay. And he won it and at the time, and I think we've all been through this when you buy your property. Every single time you win an auction or you buy a property, you always think you've paid too much at that time. I mean, I don't know about you, but every single time, every single time you win it, you're like, oh, wait, shit, did I pay too much? Every single time. And obviously time, you realize time makes you realize you've made the right decision. In hindsight. <laughs> it's always in hindsight. But that was the first experience where it was a completely run down. We needed to renovate it. So we were all working together, me, dad, my brother, Daniel, working together to renovate it. We added some value. And then about a year later, I was able to purchase my property um, in, in Blacktown. And that was the same thing. We need, it wasn't an ex-housing commission, but a, a property where it needed work. Uh, it had this huge old concrete pool in the back. It was a completely non-compliant pool, which I didn't know at the time. It needed to be compliant. No pool fence. And this was just as the laws were coming in, I, I believe, where you needed to register pools and make them compliant. Um, so we had to renovate the whole property and um, then adding value. And, and I was looking at the how to add value to the property and, and the renovation was was one of the key ways to do it. And I was fortunate to have a, a really good mentor um, at the time in the finance side of things. So mum used to work at the bank. So she was managing it or not managing. She was a teller at one of the Commonwealth Bank um, branches in Pennant Hills, which I believe has since closed down. But she introduced me to... Carol, who was one of the uh, lenders there at CBA, and she gave me a lot of different ideas about financing, and that's what really opened my eyes up to how you finance things and how you can buy property. Um, yeah, so she introduced me to the idea of the guarantor loan. Ah, okay. And that's where it opened up your world of financing. You go, hmm, actually, this is going to be interesting. We could potentially access this and access that, et cetera. And so, you know, the, the whole structure of having an 80% loan against the actual property and a 20% loan against, you know, or guarantor loan with your parents' property or whoever goes guarantor, you know, avoiding lender's mortgage insurance and being able to, to buy a property with effectively no deposit, but you know that you can service that property. So she really opened up my eyes into that side of things and being able to finance and structure how to buy property. 
So just explain for the audiences listening out there, they're probably wondering because guarantors now aren't very common uh, as you probably know because that's changed a lot. But how did that function work? Did your parents say, for example, draw equity from their place to guarantee the 20% deposit or something else was structured? Yeah, so they had to they had a mortgage on their property already and they had to refinance their mortgage to allow me to actually attach the security in Blackdown to their property as well. So there was an 80% loan, so it was about 240-odd thousand against that house in Blacktown and there was a, the balance being a 60-odd thousand dollar loan against the parent's property. Yes. But then how Carol also structured, so she said to me, she goes, look, you need to pay off your guarantor loan as soon as possible. And I'm like, okay, well, how, how do I do that? So she then structured it to say, okay, the, the bigger loan, which was against that property, the main property, do an interest only component and then pay principal and interest and put all the other payments onto your parents' guarantor loan. And then in a couple of years' time, we'll see what the property's worth and refinance it and then remove the guarantor loan. And and credit to her, in about three or four years' time, we actually refinanced, got my parents out and was able to, you know, I think it got valued at 400000 roughly at the time. So able to get my parents out which was just amazing but it would have taken that fast-tracked uh, my property journey because it would have taken me four or five years to get to that deposit target and be able to get into the property market so really fast-tracked so it was amazing that's amazing yeah i was going to say exactly that because that that just leverage to help from the parents usually helps people or kids especially their kids get into the property market without that i think a lot of kids would struggle to be able to save up. I mean, 60K in now and today's money in terms isn't that much to save up. Um, but in saying that, it's still a lot to be able to actually contribute towards buying a property because it'll take time to build that. I mean, nowadays with properties more than a million dollars, people have to save up almost like 200,000. So you're like thinking, how the heck do they do that? It's crazy. And I know we're going to dig into this later on, on the Coposit side, but that that's the exact reason why Coposit was born because of the difficulties people face trying to save for that first home deposit or even if it's a second property, that deposit is the primary barrier stopping people from getting into the property market. Yeah, it's always the case with any uh, brand new buy because they don't understand. If, you know, if, if everyone had like a, a carol like you did, it would have been you know much easier for a lot of people in our generation to be able to buy but I don't think a lot of them really understood that concept until now. So, you know, in hindsight, it's always a little bit too late. It has its risks. I mean, like the, there are risks that come associated with the guarantor loans which I think why people don't don't like them as such but um, it was my leg up and my way that my parents were able to help out to be able to get me into property in a really you know fast track my journey and the second way they were able to help me was you know I was able to live at home and not having to to leave I think maybe that's the old mentality maybe the 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 Lebanese mentality maybe even or I've seen some on the Asian I've got uh, a good friend of mine who the Asian family is the same where they they like refuse to let them leave the house until they've actually bought a property and saved up where um, and that just helps, you know, having, if you have to leave at the age of 18, 19, 20 and, and have to rent a property, become that, that cash flow, that, that's the power of compounding um, and you're not able to put that into a property or put that towards your deposit. That's a huge issue. With the previously outlined troubles regarding school and motivation, Ferris definitely seems like the active type of personnel. But in a surprising twist of events, Ferris actually decided to go to university and for a reason he's about to share, he chose accounting. This is where it came down in, in school. So I, the reason why year 11 and 12, I decided to do accounting and um, the numbers side of things, I was doing really well in maths and I think the accounting side was just, it just seemed like a natural fit. I always had an interest in numbers and then I always had an interest in business and I think being an accountant 
uh, you get to see every type of business. You get to see which businesses make money and which businesses don't. Uh, and you get to see, you know, a balance sheet and profit loss and how this all looks. And that actually um, complemented the fact when you know, I was doing share trading, looking at, or share investing rather, looking at companies and looking at balance sheets and looking at, you know, why are they profitable and look at, you know, the insights into companies. That This was such a natural um, connection for me to be able to actually go into the accounting side. So I spent five years doing my accounting degree because I was working full-time at the time. So I was doing university part-time. So doing that at night um, and working and also then going into the accounting side of things. That was for about a a six-year period and got into property development after that with myself and Daniel, my brother. And Daniel had done a very different career path. He'd gone down the construction management side and working in the construction field. So followed dad's footsteps in in that side. So working for an interior fit out company. And we both had our property purchases at the time. And we said, look, we've got a bit of equity here. You know, how can we leverage this to, you know, to buy more property? And that's always been the limitation for us in, in property is capital. How do you leverage your capital as much as possible to get that next property or to invest. And during that six-year period while you know, I had bought that property and was working, I had managed to figure out how to get a higher yield on my house in Blacktown, which was by putting a granny flat on the back. And yeah, the, the yields on the granny flats were just amazing, where it was about 20-odd percent because it cost 100 grand to build the granny flat and you're getting the same rent as the granny flat as the front house. Uh, which was incredible. Absolutely incredible because it's a brand new granny flat. People actually want that new even though it's smaller but you're still getting the same rental return. Exactly right. It, it was a brand new property. It was a great rental return. Uh, the front house and the back house released for the for the pretty much the same amount. So it was like I had doubled my income for a tenth of the cost which, on, on that property which was fantastic. So that helped build more equity into the property. I think it's about generating more cash flows. Uh, but then we sort of said, well, what do we do with this equity? Do we just buy another property and put another granny flat and just keep repeating that cycle, which was a sound strategy at the time as well. If we had have done that and, and done one every year, you'd have 15 or 20 by now. And it's, it's a very good strategy um, from an income perspective. Um, but we were very interested in the development space and, and apartment development in particular. And Daniel had been notified because he lived in the area in Seven Hills. He'd been notified that uh, there was an area in Seven Hills that was going to get rezoned. And, council were looking to rezone a particular area around Seven Hills train station. Imparting absolutely invaluable advice, Ferris teaches us about a somewhat unorthodox method to help purchase property. For those of you who are keen to enter the property market, this just cracked the code. I said, well, what's, what's optioning? And optioning is a way, and I'll explain it a little bit, where you know, typically a property purchase is you find a property, it's worth 600000 you pay a, a 10% deposit usually to secure it and you're settling 42 days later. Whereas with options, you're actually going to someone to, and there's different types of options, you've got put and call options or just put options or just call options. Um, but we would go and approach homeowners and say, hey, we want to buy this particular property. You know, we think at the moment it's worth six or 700000 which is, that's what it was. But we'll give you 900000 uh, if you grant us an option to buy that property in, say, 24 months' time, and we'll give you 1% of that 900000 upfront as the call option fee. So there's, there's three main things to the option, which is time, price, and um, the amount upfront that you're paying. So the amount upfront 
is all we'd need to outlay. So that made it very easy for us to be able to option up multiple properties and start, you know, amalgamating sites. We, so we went out to that area in Seven Hills and were able to option up four properties in a row. And, and, and that was, you know, an amazing experience. We had two other great mentors that were with us on that, an accountant and a lawyer, who introduced us to the idea or I suppose the structure of optioning. And the accountant also acted for quite a lot of large developers in Sydney as well. So it gave us the idea of, you know, if you amalgamate sites, this is how you put them together. And we'd always had the interest of getting into development. And those two partners also became our investors in, into a lot of the projects as well. So we managed to, to get four together. And then what we did with that particular four was we had optioned it up for a particular amount and then ended up selling it. And we sold it to a developer and made a seven-figure gain on that on that. Bomb. So we're talking like a two thousand percent increase in our investment. It was to lock it to lock all those properties up was about one hundred and fifty odd thousand. But we'd made a seven figure gain on those particular properties. That is phenomenal, right? So that was that was the start of the next phase of the property journey. And you know, I, I I've got a saying that you know you got to judge yourself off your losses, not your wins, because from your wins, everything goes right. And you think, well, I can do that again. I'm, I'm a superstar, right? I can do that again. But whereas your losses is where you sit back and go, okay, I did this wrong. I did this wrong. I did this wrong. Here's what I need to fix and improve for the next time. And you, you become better. I, I don't think you become better from your wins alone in isolation. I think you become better from learning from your losses. So long as you're learning from your losses. And, and what followed were some losses, let me tell you. So what we decided to do after that seven-figure gain was we then went and said, well, we can do this again. Let's go option up a whole stack more properties. So instead of locking up four properties, we ended up going through and locking up about 40 properties. In the next episode of Property Investory, Chris Ferris continues teaching valuable lessons to the audience. He further explains the value of optioning. So the idea of optioning actually came from Daniel at the time where he said, look, we've got, have you heard of optioning? And I said, no, let me have a look into it. And I came back to him about three days later and said, we need to option our properties because uh, it, it it was a low. He encourages listeners to think outside the box in order to find success in unexpected places. So whatever someone's expecting, flip the ball. But that that little lesson of flipping the board, it's not about throwing the game away. It's about if something isn't working for you, change it. Don't just keep doing the same thing. Flip the board. What's what's your equivalent of flipping the board, right? Highlights the importance of taking a swing. And don't be afraid to take risks. I think, you know, risks are part of, are part of life. You don't want to get to 60 or 70 or 80 and, and even think, oh, geez, I wish I did that.